Welcome back to another episode of our podcast, Opinionated Science. My name is Lucy and today I will be your host. Today we're going to be covering the topic of something that's both fascinating and groundbreaking, body on a chip. Now you might be wondering what exactly is body on a chip? Well, to put it simply, if that's at all possible, it's a miniature replica of the human body that's made up of these tiny little chips that mimic the function of various organs and tissues of the body. It sounds to me like something from a sci-fi movie and I'm sure it does to you too, but it has the potential to revolutionise the way that we conduct drug testing, disease modelling and even personalised medicine. In this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming one of the pioneers of this field onto the podcast to talk to you here today, Dr. Donald Ingber. So I'm pleased to welcome you onto the podcast, Don. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much. Perfect. I'm really excited to help everyone explore more about the body on the chip systems and the organ on the chip systems as well. So let's get straight into it. And I think, firstly, would you be able to take a moment to help us understand what this technology is, how it works, and the differences maybe between body on the chip and organ on the chip? Sure. So um, an organ on a chip is a small device about the size of a computer memory stick, and it has hollow channels that are lined with living human cells that are um, positioned so that they recreate the the 3D structures that you see in living tissues and organs. And uh, they actually can replicate organ level functions as well as disease processes. Uh, They're perfused with fluids. If it's a lung, they could have breathing motions. If it's an intestine, they could have peristaltic-like motions. Um, and um, you know, the goal is basically to replace animal testing and also when lined with cells from individual patients to advance personalized medicine to you know, help make your liver or your lung and choose the right drug for you. You also asked about human, human on a chip or human body on chips. And um, that's when we link together these different organs, the, the organs on chips we we develop actually have a blood vessel channel lined by blood vessel cells, and then they have the lining tissue on the opposite side of a porous membrane. And so we could collect the flow out of the blood vessel channel from one chip to another, let's say lung, liver, kidney, and recreate multi-organ type interactions. And those have become called human body on chips or human on chips. And that now is really trying to, for example, um, we've used that to be able to predict how drug levels change over time with different routes of administration or time of administration. It's called pharmacokinetics. But the reason you take a drug once a day versus three times a day, um, very important when you're designing a clinical trial or, or you know, taking a drug if you're a patient. Um, we actually shown that if you do the right experiments with these chips, you can predict what the levels will change like in a human, which mm-hmm. could maybe shortcut clinical trials design, for example. It's, in- it's incredible, honestly. <laughs> and if 
you don't mind, one of the questions I have for you is I'd actually really love to hear about your personal journey and what inspired you to create the kind of system that is Body on the Chip, Organ on the Chip, because I remember hearing about your experience kind of as an undergraduate at Yale and you were in a sculpture class and it coincided with your cell culture kind of <laughs> lessons. And I just wondered if you could share that experience on the podcast today. Yeah, I mean, it's a long story. I don't know if we have time, but um, yeah, I mean, my my leap in, into science started uh, with one of these aha moments where I was I was interested in science. I was just learning how to do cell culture in a cancer research lab, but I also was very interested in art, and I was taking a sculpture class. And I saw, I was in introduced into um, a, uh, actually, one second, I just happened to have with me uh, the model, uh, an example of it. I, I saw no a way. sculpture, it's called Tensegrity. It's made out of sticks and, it was made out of sticks and elastic strings mm -hmm. that, um, essentially uh, took on a, a round shape when it was not attached to anything. Mm -hmm. And But if, if, you, if you were to um, attach it to something flat or push it down, it would flatten. And then if you let go, it rounds up. And when I, when I did this, when the teacher did this, and a lot, it would actually bounce up in the air like that. And it was the same time I was learning to culture cells, and they flatten when they're attached to a dish, and they round up. When you clip their anchors, and it was the mid 1970s, and they had found that cells have an internal skeleton made out of nanoscale molecules, molecular filaments, called the cytoskeleton. And I immediately said, "Oh, so that must be how cells are built." And that kind of launched me on a career of the idea that mechanical deformations of cells could regulate biochemistry, gene expression, in a field known as mechanobiology now. Mm -hmm. And um, that is definitely part of organs on my organs on chips, because we actually recreate the breathing motions, peristaltic, like cyclic deformations that organs have, or the flow, the drag force of fluids going over cells. These turn out to be absolutely critical for faithfully recapitulating human physiology and pathophysiology. Mm -hmm. um, but the path to the organs and chips, you know, I did work on animals uh, in cancer research. I did not like it. I'm an animal lover. And mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was no other option. When I got to my postdoc, I really focused on developing in vitro models with cells and culture as much as I could. But Pursuing the idea that mechanical deformation of cells can control their function led me to collaborate with scientists that were beginning to make, uh, develop new ways to make microchips for the computer industry, where you have control over features at the same size scale, tiny size scale that living cells and tissues live at. And so we started to use microchip manufacturing to make adhesive substrates to control the shape of cells. And that we able to show unequivocally that the, sh the shape, the stretching of a cell controls whether they grow or die or do specialized functions. And then that was what I, we adapted to start making systems that had hollow channels to have control of flow. Mm -hmm. And then we put cells in that, and that was the beginning of organs on chips. And as we call it, organs on chips because we use microchip manufacturing to make them in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's quite so long incredible. Long story, your hopefully reasonably short. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. The timing of 
you know, you taking that class and then what you were learning about at the time, it's actually really interesting that it coincided and it kind of allowed the idea to kind of come yeah. to fruition. A lot of science is, a lot of science is not only serendipity, but learning how to leverage serendipity in my Absolutely. experience. And another thing about science is that it's not uncommon to come up against a lot of challenges and struggles. And I wondered if you could speak to some of the challenges you came up against or any limitations you really came up against whilst you were developing and using the systems. Oh, the biggest challenge is bubbles. Okay. Literally bubbles. Mm. The, the channels are so small that if you have any air bubbles getting into them, they kill the cells, they block it. So for years, that was like, it would torment us. And, <laughs> um, this, the, the system is now, I, I formed a company called Emulate that now mm -hmm. makes these chips, sells them and automated instruments to run them. And they got rid of a lot of connectors and tubing and stuff so that the bubbles are less of a problem. Mm -hmm. But it can still get you every now and then, especially when you have air, like breathing motions and so yeah. forth. But that, that was a big problem, um, largely solved. Uh, challenges in the field, getting good cell sources okay, always a, yeah. is always a, a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, you can buy a lot of cells commercially, uh, but nowadays people are um, obtaining cells from biopsies. Mm -hmm. and creating what are called organoids you're getting stem cells out of an adult and they grow in a 3d gel and they're actually very powerful for doing a lot of drug disease modeling mm -hmm. but you can't get access to the middle to the inside very easily you can't look at absorption or transport and so we grow them that way and then we break them up put them on the chip and then we put other cells like blood vessel cells immune cells microbiome in these and so now we can do much more complex types of modeling. So that has been a great source of cells. And then people have developed what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, where you take a, an adult uh, fiber, you know, a, a cell from your skin or from your blood, you give it a few genes or chemicals, and it becomes a stem cell, like an embryonic stem cell. And then you can induce it to become a particular cell type. So sometimes those are used as well. But cell sourcing has always been a problem. Um, a problem, a challenge. Um, but, you know, uh, those are the, those are actually the big ones that, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had to overcome. And, and then just essentially being able to make the devices in a reproducible way, which in the beginning we had graduate students and postdocs making their own. So there'd be a lot of variability. Mm -hmm. Now companies are making these, you know, when I company I formed is one of many, they, they have different style devices, but now you can reproduce these, mass manufacture them. And mm -hmm. so they're better refined in terms of reproducibility. Gotcha. And talking of the design, congratulations on having them kind of, I, I saw that you'd spoken, I, maybe it was on the TEDx talk, but the design of the actual organ on the chip, body on the chip won loads of awards that you weren't expecting it to. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was a real high. I mean, having, you know, having started out with, you know, always sort of crossing art and science and design, um, it won the International Design Award uh, in London a few years ago, the same year it was um, acquired for the permanent collection in the Museum of Modern Art Incredible. in New York. And uh, it's been in uh, the Pompidou, um, you know, many different art exhibitions around the world. I think... It, in the field that's called design science, mm -hmm. um, it's when design is actually used to to 
you know, help solve problems in the world. There's a simple elegance to the design, but it really, the utility of it, I think it won awards because the design is sort of the ultimate design in its, so Buckminster Fuller, who's a, developed the geodesic dome and actually coined the term tensegrity, which defines this structure, said that, you know, design is basically bringing down a, a concept to its minimal components to still have the, 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 you know, to be able to solve the problem that you want. And that's what these chips did. How do you, how do you distill down something as complex as a human organ to its simplest design principles? And mm -hmm. we basically did that by putting tissue, tissue interfaces together, which is what is the difference between a tissue and organ and having the physical environment and the flows and so forth. So yeah, no, it was a real, really exciting that it got recognized <laughs> that way. A real high. And talking of surprising, do you reckon that the development of your body on the chip systems has led to kind of any unexpected or surprising findings within biomedical research in general? Um, we continuously find that um, the physical environment is extremely important. Not surprising to me because like, that's where I started believing it. Although a lot of people skeptical that mechanical forces can be as important as chemicals and genes. But for example, uh, last year we had a paper where we showed that breathing motions are absolutely critical for regulating viral infection. Okay. And that healthy physiological breathing suppresses viral infection. And we tried to work out the actual molecular basis. And that led us to discover a drug an existing drug that we used for other applications that basically prevents cytokine storm, like in you know in COVID, right? Uh -huh. We were working on influenza, but that drug has been is now an application to the FDA to move it to clinical trials for COVID. Um, we've 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 discovered um, many cases where the you know the fluid flows or the breathing motions or the peristalsis was extremely important for both healthy function and for disease processes. Um, we've used these chips to rapidly develop another drug for COVID that's in clinical trials in Africa. We just discovered another type of therapeutic that looks like it's, um, look, we have evidence that it prevents viral infection by a broad range of viruses, SARS-CoV-2, but also the original SARS and MERS and multiple influenza. Um, so, the idea that you could use these for drug discovery is was you know is really you know exciting and gratifying. Mm -hmm. We we did studies with these chips with cigarette smoke exposure, where we developed a a little device that has ten cigarettes and like it mimics puff, puffing and pauses wow. and breathing intervals and and we looked at how the genome the trans the, the gene expression patterns change in response to smoke. Wow. And we actually mimic results from human clinical trials in the past where they had had done studies with people who are otherwise healthy but smoke cigarettes. But we actually realized that in some ways we could do the study better because all the changes we saw in genes were due to the cigarette smoke exposure. Mm -hmm. But there were a broader range of changes in patients because you're also seeing family history, work environment, you know, other things are exposed. So so there are things we realize we can in some ways do better than we could with like a clinical clinical study. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're actually looking for cause and effect, there, there are many, you know, many examples of being able to model rare genetic disorders and get insight into how how it works that no one saw before. So, I describe these as sort of a a window on molecular scale activities inside living cells, human cells inside a, a tissue and organ context. And you literally can look at them through the microscope at high resolution while all this is going on. So it, it, it and you can control all of the potential variables individually. So which you is can the have hundred percent. You know, <laughs> which you could start with, you know, like just the lining cells of your intestine and see, do you replicate a, a healthy or disease process in a patient? Mm-hmm. If you don't, something's missing. Then you could put the blood vessel cells, then you could put the immune cells, then you could put the microbiome. And the microbiome is like one of the big game changers of the last 20 years in medicine. Like I went to med school, no one ever, no one ever thought about it, that Mm -hmm. it was so important for health and disease. And almost everything we know is sort of guilt by association, like just identifying, you know, the bugs in stool with people that have this condition. And, and that's because you can't culture bacteria with human cells in a dish because it's called contamination and they die. Mm-hmm. But because we have, when we make an intestine chip, you get intestinal villi, you get mucus secretion, we have peristaltic motions, you have flow. We can literally take complex microbiome and they're, they stay in a symbiotic relationship together. And so we could actually study microbiome interact. So those are things we didn't expect when we started. Honestly, they're all incredible. And I think one of the best things when I first came across the body on a chip, organ on a chip kind of technology was that it's been touted as a potential replacement for animal testing. And I know you've touched on that already, but especially mm. in drug development and toxicology studies and things, what are your thoughts on this? And do you think that the technology will have a positive impact on animal welfare? I guess I already know the question. It's yes, but I just would I mean, like your thoughts on it too. Definitely yes. <laughs> And, I, and it's and we're getting closer and closer. You know, um, the we, we just had a paper the company emulated and I was involved with, where they tested, they make human liver chips that have um, four different cell types in the right locations, and it you know it, it looks very much like a human liver when you analyze it biochemically genetically, but uh, in drug development. The regulatory agencies like the FDA in the United States and also in Europe, their their regulatory agencies usually require that you do tests for liver induced, I'm sorry, drug induced liver injury or toxicity, mm-hmm. usually in two different species, like usually rat and dog, before you can go to a clinical trial. Yeah. And oftentimes they get completely conflicting results in the two different animal models. Or um you know, and then they'll do human cells in a dish, the conventional plastic dish, and they get different results and they kind of have to yeah. wing it. And, mm-hmm. um, and or they'll get bad results that kill what could have been a great drug. You know oh. what I mean? So mm-hmm. so what what it, what this paper did was tested 870 of these chips wow. against 27 different drugs of which all these drugs, we know the results in rat, dog and human already of which most of them were wrong in predicting what happened in human. And the chips were about seven to eight times better than animal models. It was 100% specificity, sensitivity, and 
like 87% specificity. I mean, it was really, it's clear cut. It's just much better than animal model for that mm -hmm. particular test. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see more and more of this over time. Um, and hopefully one by one, it's not going to replace all animal testing, but mm -hmm. one by one, you'll see less animals being used or one animal test being replaced um, because, you know, most of the time the predictions from the animal studies are wrong when they get their human clinical <laughs> trials and mm -hmm. everyone knows that mm -hmm. the drug companies know that regulatory agencies know that and there's been no other option for for the last 50 years however in part because of the success of these organs on chips and organoids and other human in vitro models in america in december there's a new uh congress passed the FDA Modernization Act, which now will accept data from from models like human organs on chips in lieu of animal in lieu of animal testing, if one validates they're equally robust, reproducible, and 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 qualified. Incredible. Yeah, so that that's another exciting advance recently. Unbelievable. And then as well, I think the next point on that is I'm also curious about how you feel the technology can impact personalized medicine and how the systems can be used to develop more targeted and effective therapies, especially when you think about drug development and it has to go through, as you say, those animal models, which aren't quite right. You can just go straight no. in with the personalized kind of approach. So um, before I get to the personalized, let me just say that, you know, one of the biggest problems with the animal models is the immune system. Mm -hmm. And we, we recently made what's effectively like a lymph node chip that if you if we vaccinate it with um, commercial uh, flu zone vaccine, which is an influenza vaccine that we all get, mm -hmm. you actually get the complete vaccination response in terms of all of the cellular changes and production of high affinity antibodies and inflammatory molecules. And, and we published this recently during COVID, you know, the, the challenge there was non-human primates have to be used for this now and incredible ethical concerns, but there just weren't even enough of them. And because of ethics, more and more of the centers are closing. So you know, that's a great example of where these chips, I think, are going to replace animal models. Mm -hmm. uh, non-human primates are incredibly expensive. So the drug companies, I think, may be more open to looking for alternatives between the cost and the lack of availability. Yeah. But but the immune system is a great example where the animal models we know are wrong. Mm -hmm. And and so the more you see models like that come up, the more I think that will move into the process. In terms of personalized medicine, um, I mentioned we, we, we developed a model of a bone marrow mm -hmm. where a disorder in kids called Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome, which is rare genetic disorder. The kids don't have normal white blood cell, red blood cell formation. We were able to get cells from the blood of kids, and, and there are not many of them are you know, they're very hard to, to do a clinical trial when you have a very rare genetic mm -hmm. disorder at one site because they're all over the world. There may be a good number, but not in one, in one location. With chips, you can imagine like mailing cells to one site, making their chips, testing what's the optimal drug for them, and then, then doing a clinical trial with that very same group. Mm -hmm. Or um, women are not usually represented equally in clinical trials. You can make chips for men and women. Uh, it's hard to do trials on kids. You can make chips from kid cells versus old people cells. Mm -hmm. You could do 
we're funded to, by the FDA to do work on drugs to prevent, um, to be countermeasures against radiation toxicity, like in a nuclear accident. Mm -hmm. You can't do a clinical trial on humans because Not it's really. unethical, but mm -hmm. you can do it on right. chips. Um, I think the, the big game changer, I always end my talks by saying that right now, the big drug companies will spend tens of millions of dollars you know, hundreds of millions developing a drug, but tens of millions sometimes on a big clinical trial. Mm -hmm. They almost always fail and then go <laughs> yeah. back and they'll, it's true. And then they'll, they'll do statistical analysis to say, is there a genetic subgroup of very similar patients who maybe responded better? And if they're lucky, they find them, they'll do a small trial with those types of patients and they'll get approved for a narrow application. Mm -hmm. Well, nowadays, being able to get cells from patients with organ stem cells from or IPS or organoids or primary cells, you can imagine like getting a very small select group from the beginning, maybe women who, you know, from some ethnic group that have a particular condition, make chips from 50 or 100 of them, find the optimal drug for that condition, maybe get their liver chips and minimize toxicity, mm -hmm. and then use those same 50 to 100 women in a small clinical trial and do it faster, cheaper, and more likely to succeed. I think that's what I hope will be the future. Absolutely. And I'm kind of thinking wider. I'm thinking... How do you see body on the chip systems sort of or organ on chip systems being used to improve our longer term understanding of effects of chronic diseases? So diabetes or Alzheimer's disease, just being a couple of examples, would there be any cases where that could be useful? Yeah, I mean, these, you know, we, we keep these alive for, you know, a month, maybe, you know, maybe two months at, at a time. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to do long-term chronic disease. Although we've done some interesting experiments where we, we for example, we did, um, we infected a lung chip with influenza virus. Oh. And, and, and we used a drug that's conventionally used to treat it, but only at 90%, a dose that's only 90% of effective. Mm -hmm. And then we basically passed the virus to another chip by modeling coughing, by having like, a little drop of fluid go through the airspace and pass it to the airspace of another chip that was treated similarly. Mm -hmm. And we did this to, we could actually show you can, you can model evolution of variants of concern, like viral evolution. So mm -hmm. you could actually see the virus evolve and become resistant to drug. And with, with one drug, it took eight times and the other, it took 25 times of passage chip to chip. So we haven't done it, but I wonder whether we can model chronic disorders by having like going from chip to chip, possibly. We obviously can get, we do get, we, we, we already can get cells from patients with chronic disorders. Like we have modeled chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Mm -hmm. Amazingly, if you get cells from those patients and you make lung chips, they look just like patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and you know you could develop drugs for them we've done cystic fibrosis we've done um uh you know essentially if you can get cells from these chronic patients if, even though that you know they're not being exposed on chips to years to this to some some uh, irritant they are are what we call epigenetic changes already in those cells that they retain the phenotype so we actually can model chronic diseases of many types now, um, 
diseases like Alzheimer's, we're focusing more on the blood-brain barrier and mm. developing, using that to develop shuttles that would take drugs across it because the drugs may be good that are already in development, but only a tiny percentage get into the brain. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of leveraging chips at that level. Um, but you you can, if it's all designing the system right for the question you want. Not everything is doable, obviously. You're not going to yeah. do with consciousness. But um, uh, there, there, there's, it's pretty amazing what you can do. Mm -hmm. And also potentially a hard question, but I'm curious about the potential for integrating these kind of systems with other emerging technologies. So like artificial intelligence, machine learning, maybe even like 3D printing. Have you oh, well, considered that? Do you think it's possible? What kind of impact yes. do you think it would have? Yes, have. yes, and, and yes. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I had, I'm the d director of the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard, and mm -hmm. there are other, uh, we have a major plot uh, initiative called 3D Organ Engineering, where people are 3D printing organs, both for drug development and screening in vitro, and also to be transplanted in vivo. So they're building bigger structures, but They've built kidneys with, with blood flow that are being used for drug screening as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of machine learning and artificial intelligence, yeah, I, we have a, a number of papers out or in review where we combine organ chips with machine learning and other approaches. W what we do is we actually harness the huge data sets that are already available on the web from uh, transcriptomic, meaning gene expression, profiles of let's say healthy people and diseased people and and but then we counterpoint that with experiment like we we use ai to come up with predictions of what drugs may make disease look like a normal so what drugs existing drugs would be predicted to flip it mm -hmm. but then we have these organs on chips to sort of test that generate more gene expression data and counterpoint it and and sort of iterate in on drugs that would be effective. Um, and yeah, we have things that are moving to clinical trials actually from those sorts of approaches. So um, yes, that is the future because you know the power of artificial intelligence is tremendous, but the idea that you're just gonna pull it out of data and get a answer is I think a little bit simplistic. You really have to, in my experience, link computational approaches with experimental approaches in this sort of iterative way mm -hmm. to really come up with meaningful breakthroughs. Nice. And then look into the future. You've mentioned so many exciting things about this, but if you had to drill it down to just one thing, what would you say excites you the most <laughs> about the potential applications of body on a chip, organ on a chip systems? You know, um, some of the things that I, I'm thinking about are almost like personalized therapeutics in the sense that what, what we do with the AI machine learning is often what's called repurposing, mm -hmm. which is finding existing drugs. They're already approved. A doctor can, can you know, prescribe them from some other condition and finding that they're useful for things like COVID or, you know, other diseases. And... So with organs on chips, it raises the possibility of like making your chip 
with your disease condition and not only finding like what existing drug, but maybe what combination of drugs and being able to quickly have a solution as opposed to 15 years of, you know, find a new compound, then have to go through the regulatory process again. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think is really interesting and, and even work out the dosing of it. Yeah. Um, I think the, um, the, the idea I mentioned, I already said to you, this idea of designing clinical trials um, by essentially designing clinical trials by choosing a subgroup, making their chips, optimizing drugs for efficacy and safety, and then using those same patients. I think that's probably the most exciting thing for me for changing the entire world of drug development. Mm-hmm. You know, big drug companies spend a huge amount of money, incredible amounts of time, take years to do this drug development stuff. And, and my little, you know, our little academic lab, it's not that little, but, you know, an ac- a small academic group, we've come up with uh, drugs that are in clinical trials that have, you know, uh, pre-IND submissions to move a drug to clinical trials, mm-hmm. other ones that are being licensed in like two years during COVID, you know, so <laughs> I, I think, I think there, I think you really can expedite the drug discovery process and as, as well as development, not just toxicity, replacing animal testing for toxicity tests. So I, I think that area is sort of overlooked. I think the personalized medicine I, I mentioned as well. I mean, it, it just opens up so many possibilities because you're talking about human biology yes. and and patient specific biology not extrapolating from what a mouse is you know there are a lot of cancer cures for mice mm-hmm. if you're a mouse you got it solved but <laughs> they don't really work in humans and yeah, also if they do work in humans they often only work for a subpopulation like cancer immunotherapies are incredibly exciting mm-hmm. but it's only like a small percentage of patients that respond, but they respond completely. So it's a cure. It's an, it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. But what about the 70% that don't or the, the conditions that don't at all? So I think things like that you have to do in human. Mm-hmm. And even, I guess, and, this isn't a question I had down, but I'm just thinking as I'm sort of talking, for stuff like that, I guess when you have comorbidities, comorbidities as well, you could with your body on the chip, organ on the chip systems, you could link up different things within that person to make it really personalized too? That's a very insightful question. We've actually done that. So we did, so it's well known that patients with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, are much more sensitive to viral infection. Mm. And we actually can show if we make chips that are healthy versus COPD and we infect with influenza, there's 10 times higher viral load with the COPD chips and higher inflammatory molecules being mm-hmm. secreted. So we can actually look at comorbidities in these chips. You're absolutely right. Which is incredible because if you think about how many diseases do have comorbidities or how many people you know that don't just have one disease, they also have something else as well. Oh, and also almost incredible. all animal testing is done on healthy animals. Exactly. Without any Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And I know that. And for toxic, and particularly for toxicity testing, right? Mm-hmm. So for toxicity testing, comorbidities can be you can get totally different toxicity uh, if you have a comorbidity. And then, of course, 
most patients are already on many drugs, yep. which is not done in animals, but you potentially could do on these two. One thing that's exciting I didn't mention for personalized medicine is I have mm -hmm. a collaboration with a surgeon in uh, in Canada, and he's taking, he has patients that have esophageal cancer, mm -hmm. cancer of the esophagus. We're getting the cells that line the esophagus and the, and the stromal cells, the connective tissue cells. We put them in our chip and those patients get four drugs intravenously over 24 hours, but one drug is over an hour, one is over two, one's over four, one's over 24 at particular doses. And we can mimic that because we have flow through the blood, through, the, through one of the channels. And when you do that, you can pick out which patients are sensitive to therapy and which are resistant. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so, um, again, this opens up the way to figure out, you know, how do you get around those problems and what dose regimen, like what administration frequency and what dose to use in patients. And that's something that no other system really can do right now. No, absolutely. And another question I have that wasn't on my question list, but how long do you reckon, and you might not be able to answer this, but it's a question I have in my mind, of how long do you reckon until body on the chip, organ on the chip becomes mainstream? As in, if you were to go to hospital, this is an option that they would really be thinking about as soon as you came in, rather than potentially through trials and things like that. Well, in the drug development space, in the pharmaceutical industry and biotech industry space, all of these companies are beginning to explore these types of in vitro systems. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that, like with the example of the liver chip I gave you, where it, it, it you know, it's shown to be, not only is it shown to be much better than the animal model for drug-induced liver injury, the paper had an economic model that that suggests or estimates that if you could, the ac the increase in accuracy from this model would save the pharmaceutical industry $3 billion a year, just for that one test. So I think the economics <laughs> is probably what's going to drive companies. That's going to drive them. Think about taking and then, you know, each time, you know, as soon as a company gets a drug approved more quickly because of this, or has a drug that fails because it caused liver injury in a human and they go back and they can find mm -hmm. one of their related compounds looks good in this model and they go back quickly. Things like that happen. I think you'll see a, a, a tipping point in the industry. Mm -hmm. My hope is that in the next five years, you're going to see more, more of these things being used. Now, in terms of patients, you know, they're expensive, they're, mm -hmm. they, they need to be proven, but there are groups around the world that on a one-off basis, clinicians are beginning to explore these and use these. So I can't give you an estimated time because it always takes longer than you think, but, Makes sense. but it's <laughs> happening. It's, it's beginning to happen. That's, that's, I think the exciting part. Lovely. And then my last question for you is a bit rogue, but it, has to be kind of asking for advice. We have a really wide audience and our listeners who are listening might be interested in pursuing a career in biomedical engineering, um, particularly maybe in the area of tissue engineering and regen med. What advice would you give them? I, th I think you really have to learn what the question is first. And that question really comes from understanding the real medical conditions that you're trying to solve. So I, I'm in, I, in America, we have what we call MD PhD program. So I, I did an MD at the same time as a PhD. Mm 
Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone has to do that, but the more you could have contact with learning what the real conditions are, what the real problems are, what the existing you know solutions are or suboptimal solutions are, the more you understand you know where the needs are and where you you know what you need to do to have a competitive advantage that is actually going to make a difference. That's one side. The other side is um, you, you never know where the solutions are going to come from, but they usually come from crossing boundaries between different disciplines, in my experience. Mm -hmm. And so I would not get too narrow or or constrain yourself. I, I follow your passions. And, you know, maybe you don't end up in regenerative medicine or bioengineering, but you change the world in another way. Mm -hmm. It's much better. to. You're always you're going to. You know, you're never going to reach your potential if you're doing things because you think you should and not because you're excited. But you can truly surpass your potential if you if you do something that excites you. So, I mean, I, I just follow where wherever the path leads you. Incredible. What a lovely way to end the podcast. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And there you have it. That was our episode of Opinionated Science on Body on a Chip. I hope I'll see you again very soon.